If you've uh, read the announcements ahead of time, you've got some background on our speaker today, Christy Stotts, a uh, young, young woman I've gotten to know uh, over my computer during the last months by emails and by Zoom calls. So now I get to see the, the, the real Christy who is here. Um, she has long experience working in Christian ministries with people who are seeking a home in a different country. And I've, I've enjoyed working with her just this past week. Uh, I got to see some of her handiwork in that bringing people together to talk about how to welcome immigrants to our communities. Uh, and it also, she found people who know people. Uh, our friend Geraldo Nunez from Oroville uh, was on with the police chief from Oroville and the mayor of Oroville. And these brothers obviously know each other and have worked together, and she knew about them and brought them on with people who are working on, on policy questions from Washington, D.C., and uh, people working with what's needed and what can work. And so she's just a good weaver of people to put together efforts to help imagine what God would want for our state, for, our, for, our, for the immigrants in our midst. So I look forward to hearing what God has for her to share today. And we'll hear the text that she's chosen for today next. Christy has selected Hebrews 11 for today's scripture, and this passage gives us quite a list of people who put their faith in action. And I invite you to either uh, turn to the passage in your Bibles or uh, follow along as it's displayed on the wall. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with, found, with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, 
was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. They had been thinking of the country, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. And by faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. And by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging 
and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were persecuted. I'm sorry, they were killed by the sword and they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. nice to be with you guys. So the first time I memorably heard this passage taught was about, I just realized, it was 20 years ago. Um, I was a college student, and I had gone to college a really strong Christian and hit my first crisis of faith with these doubts I was wrestling with. Um, and I wrestled all semester with pride, quietly, didn't tell my friends. I was leading the apologetics ministry at Miami, so that was even worse, is I knew all the answers to my faith. Um, and went away to a conference um, as I had struggled and wrestled, and I got to the conference, and the pastor opened up the Bible, and he said, this weekend we're gonna preach on Hebrews 1, and he read the first verse, and I cried. It was like Jesus saw me, and I just felt so seen by God. And so this is a passage I've come back to time and time again. I'm going to put my timer on because I could talk. Um, there we go. Um, and so it's, it's one that has been just so dear and precious in my life. Um, but there's so much to glean out of this. Um, so I promise we're not going to inch by inch go through every single verse because um, it's a lot, but I'd encourage you later this week as you're digging into the Bible to just reflect on this um, and see what else the Lord pulls out of this beautiful passage. Um, so Hebrews 11 is a whistle-stop tour of the people of God, um, and it takes us on this big picture of, of this is what it means um, to follow him, and these are all these key players who have been a part of this great story that we are now grafted into and part of um, as, as non-Jewish people. But at the time, you know, the early church who was hearing this, they're persecuted. Um, they've already experienced being pushed around for their faith and had to flee themselves. And the writer of the Hebrews um, is exhorting them this big picture throughout the whole passage and the whole book about what it means to have Jesus as your anchor and your hope in Jesus. And then it, it just drops this like history lesson right in the middle. So we're going to have three points we're kind of going to dig at today. Um, the first is the rule of the kingdom, which is faith. The second is the unusual kingdom, 
living as strangers and exiles or foreigners. Um, and then the third is the king who was exiled with us. Um, so if we look at the very beginning, um, Hebrews 11.1, 1, the rule of the kingdom is to believe God. And for those who have been Christians a long time, I think I find in my life this can be the easiest thing in the world. I grew up in church. I came to follow Jesus as a little girl. Um, I remember my dad and mom reading me Bible stories. Like, believing God was just the easiest thing for me um, in a lot of ways. I, I was a missionary in England for a number of years before I moved into working in immigration advocacy, which is a very funny God story in itself. But I was a missionary in England, and I would talk to students who were atheists and agnostics and Muslim. That was a lot of the students I worked with. And I remember especially that agnostics would tell me they wanted to believe, but it was so hard. And that was something I had to say, like, for me, often belief was easy. Like, I just grew up and, and trusted. But for some of you, belief might be really hard, and, and it's not easy. You might wrestle your whole life. Um, and in these seasons I've had, like when I was 21 years old, um, and I hit my doubts and wrestling matches, um, belief is hard. But the hope in it is we're putting our confidence not in ourselves, not in having the right answers, not in being able to engage in all the hard questions. Um, later in my life, I've had different kind of wrestling matches that have not been about intellectual doubts, but they have been about deep suffering I have seen and experienced myself or I've watched other people experience. Um, I've had seasons where I've been angry at God. Like, I believe he's there and I believe he exists, but I'm mad at him. I'm not sure I like him right now. Um, and so we can go through these different periods in the Christian life and wrestle. But what's beautiful about Hebrews 11.1 1 is our faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. And, and, and that faith can be very simple. You don't have to have all the answers or it all together, but you're anchoring onto a person, which is Jesus. So my minister when I was in England, um, Ian Garrett, he would always talk about the rule of the kingdom or this kind of kingdom we're a part of as Christians is the now and the not yet. So we're all waiting for the kingdom of heaven when we're with God forever in person and there's no more suffering and, and we're in God's presence. Um, but right now, you know, we do belong to Jesus if you've trusted in him, but we're in this period where there's suffering. There is unseen. Um, the kingdom that we're in now, we cannot control. And so if you go through Hebrews chapter 11, what you see is a lot of folks who have experienced hard things. Um, I love the, this weird bit toward the end, and it just kind of is this almost afterthought. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. Women received back their dead, they were raised to life. That's very ins inspirational. And then it says, there were those who were tortured, refusing to be released, so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. And then it goes on to say the world was not worthy of them. And so the reality, the normal Christian life, whether you were a Jew in the first century or you were a new Gentile convert into into God's kingdom from Ethiopia or from Rome or from Greece was the normal Christian life is one of suffering. And the normal Christian life is full of unseen things. So you go through the first chapter, all of these people, Noah, Abraham, Moses, they didn't actually know a lot. Like God just said, go. He didn't really fill in all the blanks for Abraham when he had him leave everything he knew and pick up and move and become a foreigner. Um, so it is full of unseen things. And, we, and I think for us, I find, maybe not you, but 
to not control everything, that's really hard. Um, and, and one thing we could just remind ourselves and stick ourselves back in, in the scripture and go, it is normal to not control things. So when I want to control, I can turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm not in charge here. Help me to trust you. Um, so the now, right now, that we're in, as we're waiting for heaven, is full of unseen, it's full of suffering, it's a kingdom we cannot control. But Hebrews 11 also reminds us that the now is full of hope. And the hope they have is they're listening to God and they're following him. But it's a weird hope. It's not a hope that says, oh, it's all going to work out in the end. You're not going to die. Or it's all going to work out in the end. It's going to be an easy road. Their hope came with uncomfortability and the unknown. And so a good practice for us in the Christian life is to say, how do I put my hope in that anchor who is Jesus, who is God himself? And it might be financial troubles that we're facing. It might be grief. We've all experienced grief this last year as so many of us have been separated from people we care about. So many of us have lost people we care about because of COVID-19. Um, it's been full of loss. Um, what does it mean to have our hope and our anchor in Jesus? And they followed him. They followed him into what was uncomfortable and unknown. So the second point I want to look at today, and this is the one I'm going to probably spend the most time on, is the unusual kingdom, living as strangers and foreigners or exiles. Um, verse 13 says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers, or the verse I uh, prepped in, the Bible translation said, exiles on earth. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The unusual kingdom. So the people of Israel, whom everyone here listening to this, most of them, there would have been a lot of Jewish believers in this context, they have these two anchors in their history, and everything about their story has been about these two anchors the exodus and the exile. And both of them were really difficult periods. Um, they were very difficult parts to their narrative. The exodus, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Exodus 22. The people of God, you guys all know this, they end up coming into the land of Egypt during a time of famine, and Joseph is known by the Pharaoh, and he is powerful, and they get brought in and taken care of. And then eventually, a Pharaoh doesn't remember Joseph and his story. And he looks at all these foreigners in his land, these people who are not like us, and he says, they could come up and they could, they could kill us. They could revolt against us. We should, we should conquer them so that they don't bring harm against us. And, and he takes them and makes them slaves. And so for 400 years, God's people suffer in slavery. And that is their story. And then God raises up Moses, whom we see in this story here, and he brings them out. And they tell themselves the story of the Exodus every year, over and over. And in fact, if you're Jewish now, or if you're a Christian who likes to remember some of the Jewish holidays, 
The story of the Passover is the story of God bringing them out. Um, and in Hebrews 11, it refers to Moses trusting in God. Again, believing in God, this simple act of faith in putting the blood over the doorposts to spare um, the Israelite children. Um, the Exodus is this important anchor. And, and it is, it's woven into the Exodus story is these questions of, of foreigners and what it means to not belong. Um, they were foreigners in the land of Egypt, and then they got brought out of Egypt, and God's people were still foreigners, and they wandered in the desert, and then they get to a new land, and it doesn't last very long. And so the second one is the exile. So God's people, very quickly, in their new land, they say they want a king, and they want to be like all the other nations. And God says, don't, you don't want a king. The king will not be good for you. And they don't listen. And they have this little discussion with God's um, prophets, and they want a king, and they demand a king, and the king does what God says he's going to do. And they get warned, and their kings lead them away from God. The first king, Saul, was bad news. It gets worse. Even David, who was you know man after God's own heart, did a lot of terrible things. And very quickly, God's people forgot the covenant that he promised them, which was he would be with them, but they needed him to be their number one. There was to be no other gods. And as they asked for a king, their kings did lead them to be like all the other nations. They got these strong men who were powerful and who led the people away into wickedness. And so the exile is most of the Old Testament. So you get to the prophets, and basically God's people get hauled off by a foreign nation, taken away, the kingdom of Israel gets split as discipline, as, as a punishment. They get hauled off and basically they, they are conquered and they don't have their land anymore and they're under someone else's rule and they're oppressed. And this is God's discipline for them, for forgetting, forgetting the Lord, that he is to be their God and their God alone for their idolatry, but also forgetting the way he wanted his people to live. So the rule of the kingdom is faith, but the unusual kingdom is God made all of these commands for his people that they were to live distinctly. And he gave them all these rules for how they were to relate to God himself and one another, and then how they were to treat those outside of their land. And it was so radical and so generous. You get to places like Zechariah 7.10, which is one of the reasons God disciplines them and sends them into exile. They forgot this. Um, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Over and over, and it starts early in the Pentateuch in the first five books of the Bible, God tells Israel that they are to treat the foreigner like their own. They are to care for the widow. They are to care for the poor. They are to care for the orphan. These vulnerable populations, some theologians call the quartet of the vulnerable. And it was a sign of their outward, their outward actions towards these vulnerable populations was a sign of how they were posturing themselves with the Lord. And as they abandoned the Lord and sought after power and the leadership of kings who could conquer nations, as they sought after security that didn't come from God but came from earthly kinds of security, and they went after foreign gods, they also neglected these populations. And it was one of the reasons for their discipline. So for us, I find this is hard. So the unusual kingdom is to live as strangers, foreigners, or exiles. And that's what the people of Israel did their whole history. But what does that mean for us in the United States? So we 
Most of us haven't, if you were born here, most of us haven't lived as exiles. I grew up in Stowe, Ohio. I lived a middle class life. My dad was a working class background and pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He worked at Ford. Um, what does that mean for, for us? Our country is actually a lot more like Rome or Babylon, the, the empires, than we are like the conquered people. So the US for the last 100 years has been a world power. We have the biggest military in the world. We've got bases all over the planet. We have the biggest economy in the world. We've got wealth that generations before have never imagined. It's really hard to think about how to apply what does it mean for us as the people of God to live as strangers and exiles, which we're told to do. So in the New Testament, First Peter, we're reminded, and they were, they were living as exiles. We're reminded to live as foreigners and exiles. But it's really hard in our current reality of that's not been what a lot of us have experienced. So this is my encouragement for you. This is how we could remember and how we could learn. We can look to three things, the early church, church history, and our current reality of global refugees. So the early church, Acts 8.1, it says there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You get later in Acts, and you know this, they were scattered throughout the known world because of persecution. So God has these unusual ways of making his kingdom happen in the world. And one of these unusual ways is he has allowed persecution to scatter his church. And I wonder if he doesn't do that because we know that Revelation 7 is where the kingdom of God is going. So in heaven, there's going to be people worshiping Jesus at his throne from every tongue, tribe, nation, and planet. And I can't talk about that verse without getting teary every ethnicity. And so if we all hung out in Jerusalem forever with just people who spoke Aramaic and Hebrew, maybe a few Greeks, it wouldn't have happened. And so God allowed this terrible thing of persecution to scatter the church. And as they did, they brought the gospel with them. Um, very early in the church in Acts 2, um, the gospel gets preached. It happens to be a festival day, and all of these people were in Jerusalem from all these other nations. And it says that people um, who spoke Arab and people Arabic and Cretan and Roman, like they were all there and they heard the gospel, that first big preach that Peter did. Um, and so, so one of the ways is we can look back to, to early church history of the early church and what we're reading in Paul's letters and Peter's letters at the end of the New Testament are a scattered people because of pers persecution. And that is the normal, that was how God launched his church. Um, the second is more recent church history. So um, I did some background reading on the Mennonite congregations and churches around the world. And you guys have a long story of persecution at the beginning of your church history. And for hundreds of years, in fact, as the Mennonite church grew in Europe, well, a lot of European kings weren't so comfortable with this church that wasn't a state-sponsored church being in Europe. And so throughout Europe, people who where Mennonites were persecuted, they were killed, and they would get up and they would leave with their families and move to the next country. Um, and so, so in that is this hope that your forefathers of your churches and foremothers of your churches had of being able to worship God freely without the controls of the state-sponsored church, um, being able to baptize by immersion instead of infant baptism. Um, and that was costly. 
Um, but that is part of the story of church history that we can think about is the exiles before us in our own denominational history. Um, and then now we can look to the global church. So right now, there is 79.5 million globally displaced people. Um, of those portion, if you're displaced outside of your country, you're called a refugee. Everyone else is called displaced. So it also includes people that might be displaced from one side of Syria to the other side seeking to have safety. My old housemate in England is a doctor, and she was just in Syria for the last two months serving in a Kurdish region where they were allowed to kind of sneak in um, and serve some of the Syrian Arabs. Um, and it was the only hospital in the entire region. Um, and it's only been open for eight months. So the Syrian civil war has displaced most of their population. Um, there's a million Syrians today living in Lebanon in refugee camps. Um, most Syrians got displaced into neighboring countries, and there's so many, the neighboring countries are taking them in, but they can't even absorb them um, because Assad's regime has been so brutal on his people. And so, so we could look at those who've been displaced internally, but then globally, many of these people, people are displaced for a lot of reasons. There's wars happening around the world, we know that. There's famine happening around that. There's, there's gang violence. So we can look at south of our border, um, you know, the border crisis has been in the news a lot the last few months, people have talked about it. And many of those people, so my work, we are down at the border all the time. So um, I just, we had a seminar on Friday and four of my coworkers and colleagues spoke on it, um, along with one of the sh local sheriffs from Arizona and a pastor from Arizona. Um, and they were talking about what's happening at our border. And people are fleeing horrible things. And so um, one of them is the story of Miriam Jordan, the journalist, um, she wrote this story about two weeks ago, and it was about Javier Gomez and his daughter Maria. They are from Venezuela, they were middle class, they, um, he was a salesman. As the Venezuelan um, government has been taken over by a, let's call him a dictator, um, and the economy has crashed, and lots of bad decisions were made. Um, Venezuela went from a very developed wealthy country to absolutely plummeted. And what has happened is um, people have no vaccines. They have, their, their currency's worth nothing, so even if they're working jobs, they can't buy anything. Um, and the poverty and the, the violence is so bad and the persecution is so bad from the government. If they speak out against the government, there's immediate retaliation. Um, that people are just fleeing in droves. So um, Miriam Jordan writes the story of Javier and Maria, and they sold everything they had three months ago, or now four months ago, and they walked because there was no way they could get a visa to come here because there was just none available in our current system. And they walked and they, and they got themselves literally paid for buses and trains and planes and got across Mexico from South America up through Central America. And they got to our border and there's a picture and it's quite moving of them. They had just gotten to the Yuma, Arizona side of the border and they fell on their knees and they worshiped. I'm a crier, so you guys should know that. Um, these are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They don't know that they will be able to stay here. So actually, they're asking for asylum, and the asylum process is quite difficult and long and arduous. And so they'd have to prove that they've been persecuted by a government in order to be able to come. So poverty is probably not one of those categories that will qualify them. Um, 
but, but that's the story. So right now there are 6,000 Venezuelans that crossed the U.S. border in last month asking for asylum. And normally there's less than 1,000 Venezuelans a year come that route. Venezuelans were wealthy people. They would fly here and go on vacation. I have a friend who's a Venezuelan, and he is the head of an engineering firm for, an Africa, for the entirety of Africa, and he's a very wealthy man, way wealthier than I could ever imagine being. And so, so that's what's happened to a destitute people um, because of what's happened in their country. But then other countries, Honduras and El Salvador, they're also making up some of these um, refugee folks that are coming to our border. High levels of violence, so both of those countries are in the top five level of murder victims in the world. Um, and those are not run mostly by the state, but they're mostly run by gangs and, 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 and violent gangs. And some of the gangs have been involved with the police force there and involved with the government. So it makes it very complicated. So I met a man about 18 months ago, 19 months ago, right before the pandemic started. Um, and he was a pastor in El Salvador and he began to lead gang members to faith. And guess what? When you start to follow Jesus, you change your life. And so as gang members started following Jesus, they stopped participating in all the nefarious activities of the gang. Well, the gangs got angry because it was a lot of their source of income. And so he began to get death threats. And so this man had to make this choice. Do I stay here and keep serving, or do I protect my family? What a terrible choice for a father to make. Um, and so it, it took him about 18 months, but he came and he lived in a tent at our border. Um, the judge, when he finally granted him asylum, said, you've served people in El Salvador, you've served people for the last 18 months, you've been living on the street outside of our border in a tent. Um, we need men like you in America. And he granted him asylum. Um, so the question for that is, what would make you pick up your kids and leave or pay a smuggler to get your family across Mexico or into Europe? It's desperation. And so for us as believers who haven't experienced, like I've never experienced that level of desperation, I could look to the global church as I look at this passage of what does it mean to live as a stranger and a foreigner in exile? And I could ask them, help me understand, how do I learn? What practices do I have? The people I've met who have the most generosity and the biggest hospitality are my friends who have come as refugees. So I have a friend, Tahira. She her and her husband carried their children from Afghanistan across several Central Asian countries, undocumented, illegally, three times before they finally got into Turkey and were able to ask for asylum and refugee status and finally were granted it and got to come to the States. Um, currently, she can't bring any of her extended family um, because there's no visas available for them. And her family, her parents were killed by the Taliban. Um, so it's like, I can sit and I could learn um, the desperation of a mother and how that should inform my faith and my generosity, my kindness. Every time I go to Tira's house, I get fed. She's making me fat. Um, out of her poverty, she is incredibly kind. Um, and so that's something that could shape my faith. Um, all right, last point is, so we've gone from the rule of the kingdom, which is faith, it's trusting God, and we don't need to know all the answers, and it can be hard, and it can also be racked with doubt. We just need a little bit and to keep turning our faith toward him. The second is the unusual kingdom, living as strangers and foreigners or exiles. And if it's really hard to imagine, we can think about the global church. And the last is the king who was exiled for us, which is Jesus. So how do we orient our lives to live like Jesus's kingdom? We have a king who stepped out of heaven as God himself. 
He lived as a foreigner. He was poor. He was an exile. The Bible says he wasn't attractive to look at. And he experienced the ultimate exile from heaven. And then that weird thing, I don't understand what happened on the cross where it says God, you know, judged Jesus. I don't understand that. It's like Jesus' father, like, why have you forsaken me? Like, what is going on there in the Trinity? I don't understand that. But Jesus experienced the ultimate exile as he took up the cross and willingly laid down his life. So what does that mean for me in application? I can live as an exile. Um, about two months ago, Gallup polls came out that for the first time ever, um, church membership is below 50% in the US. Only 36% of millennials, my group, belong to a church. Um, of those who say religion is very important, it's only 47%. That's a pretty significant drop in the last 10 years. And that means I'm okay. Why? Because this is normal for God's people. It's bumpy. It's normal to be the minority. Um, it should motivate me to pray for my friends, neighbors, country. It should motivate me to want to talk winsomely about Jesus. And I don't need to be afraid of unbelief, but I could live like Daniel as an exile. I could seek the good of the city like Nehemiah did and reminded us that we were called to do when he lived as an exile in the Old Testament. Um, when I was in England, actually only 5% of the church, uh, church attendance in England. And it was fascinating because I think what, before I went as a missionary, the thought was like, oh, this pagan country. But actually, it was quite refreshing. If I went to church, people knew you were a real Christian. There's no cultural Christianity. And I got into the most amazing spiritual conversations about Jesus. They were so curious. Like, I was such a, a little freak. <laughs> um, and so, so as we're watching these polls that are quite disheartening, so God could use that. God could use that. And so we can live confidently. Um, the king who was exiled for us, we can practice by faith what God called his people to do, which is believe him. We could care for the quartet of the vulnerable. We could, um, some of you might choose to get involved with something like safe families and be a temporary foster care parent for, for families in trauma and crisis who, whose kids get taken into the social care system for a period of time. Um, you could get involved with welcoming your immigrant neighbors. So we talked about those fleeing um, locally in Ohio. Um, there are 45,000 people who help um, do our farm work. And many are documented, and they have the H-2 visas, but many are undocumented because we haven't fixed that system in about 30 years. And so our farm work, our farm, farmers cannot get enough laborers. And the many of those people who are undocumented are coming from places like Honduras, where the murder rate is so high that they've gotten their children and they've fled, and they're here under the radar trying to work and feed their kids and be far away from gangs. And so as you meet them in grocery stores or in your community, um, we could practice what it means to be the people of God by welcoming them, caring for them, inviting them into our churches, getting to know them. Um, the widows, um, it's been a lonely year. Are, are we looking out for one another? Are we reaching in to check on each other? Um, how do we care for the poor? So we could practice our faith um, by doing this. And then lastly, we could believe God by turning away from those who would feed us with fear and division. Our country's been quite polarized. I don't know if you all noticed. Um, there's a, a group called More in Common, and they did a study on us. And apparently, they're not two tribes. We always think of it as two tribes. There's seven tribes in America, very distinct. And the two ends of it are the most angry people, and they shout the most. But um, I think one of the practices for us right now, believing God, is to make sure my identity is rooted in Jesus and not in my tribe, whatever that is, whether it's 
the city I live in or my political party or my um, ethnic identity or um, I belong to this sport instead of that sport or I'm from the country rather than the city or the city rather than the country. Um, how do I have my identity rooted in Jesus? And I'd say a good practice for us is if we're listening to people on the radio or CNN or Fox News, I call them the rage jockeys. They just want to fuel us with fear and rage. That's not helpful for my spiritual practice. So I have found I just turn them off and I get back into God's word and I get into community and I get to know people and it helps me move out of tribalism into we are part of the community of God and I want to live on mission for Jesus as a Christian, serving and loving my fellow Christians, but also getting to know my non-Christian neighbors. Um, so to finish. The world's displaced people are longing for a better country. And in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, we see that all these people had so much to look towards, but they didn't know the answers. It was uncertain. It was uncomfortable. But they were longing for a better country because they had this hope in God's future promise. And they didn't even clearly know in the time of Abraham and Moses who that was. We know. We know that that promise is based on Jesus we can remember that our ultimate citizenship lies in God's kingdom, in heaven, and being with him, the place God is preparing for us. And that Jesus is such a good king that he did the unthinkable. He was exiled for us, and he calls us to live as exiles, as foreigners, in this upside-down, unusual kingdom. We can have hope because our faith is in the one, in Jesus, who is worth finding our sense of security in. I pray for us. Um, Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here at Midway Mennonite Church. I thank you for their love of you. I thank you for their practice of worshiping you. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that we here are grafted into a long history of people who've come before us. As Hebrew says, we are part of a great cloud of witnesses, and I pray as we remember them, that you would help us to anchor our hope in you like they did. In Jesus' name I pray.